I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. House and Senate leaders are calling for a special session as time is running out for the regular session ending next Friday. The special session will run concurrently to the regular session, but could also allow lawmakers a chance to meet in June. Ryan, why would the legislature decide on this special session? We'll first point out that Sean Ashley, longtime Capitol reporter, observer, says that, you know, while we call them special sessions, they're actually extraordinary (laughs) sessions. Uh, That's uh, so, you know, you know, special, extraordinary. uh, We'll we'll see. Right. I mean, that's such a that's such a uh, an optimistic term to put on to put on any sort of legislative (laughs) session. It sounds great. You know, those our founders did something nice, Um, but they did this so that they would have time that they could pass budget bills because they were running out of time to pass budget bills. The budget had been held up largely because of the education fight uh, and the negotiations over whether they could reach an education deal, which they did, and I'm sure we'll talk about in just a moment. But they were running out of time to get the budget done. If they passed budget bills in the current regular session, there was not going to be there was going to be an opportunity for the governor to veto those pieces of uh, appropriations bills, which he's done in the past. Uh, this this governor has vetoed huge parts of education deals that had very popular support in both chamber, chambers of the legislature. So it's not unthinkable uh, that the governor might do the same again. Uh, and legislative leaders did not want to give him that that unilateral power of veto without an opportunity to at least come back and potentially override those vetoes. So that's why we have this special, extraordinary, stupendous, <laughs> extravagant, uh, extravagant, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, session so that uh, lawmakers will have that. Because once they convene in that, they'll be able to convene. They're moving bills through that process. But once they pass it, they'll be able to sit in special session until the governor's veto opportunity is over, and then they'll conclude that special session either with veto overrides or maybe they won't have to do anything at all. Neva. Well, that's exactly right. And and here's the here's the conundrum that they're in. I mean, the the clock, as we talked about last week, ticking down. And really, even this week, talking about the budget, I mean, all they've done is really uh, some money for uh, some ARPA uh, money expenditures and a few things on the budget. But largely, the, con- the talk has been around the Capitol that the budget is a long way from anything that resembles a final product that would be uh, voted on in both chambers. So with that, I mean, the pressure... Uh, the pressure was really on, and the clock was really had run out in terms of, as you say, Ryan, I mean, knowing the governor, given the fact that uh, last year and two years before he, he vetoed large sections of the of the budget, they have to be in a position to be able to come back in and hopefully have the votes and be able to override override those vetoes. And it puts the the question on so many other things because infused into this uh, into this week that's been kind of crazy to start with, you had this curveball uh, 
on Wednesday evening with basically the Senate having not named conferees on House bills, so um, which kind of put, put things in limbo with respect to everything else that was still trying to move through the process. Basically, now you've got uh, members uh, having to decide, you know, do we pull back and wait for, you know, wait for next time? Or do we hope that we can somehow get conferees on the other side and we can and we can move this through the move this on through the process? So there's that entanglement. And then you have you have this continued conversation on the uncertainty of the um, uh, the vetoes that are still sitting there and which mm-hmm. ones will be overridden will they all be will none of them be uh, we've talked about about many of those that have been caught up in that and then you have the house and the governor kind of inject into this overarching <laughs> umbrella of what do we do to get a budget uh, talking about they still want some tax uh, they they still want tax relief and so uh, the Senate continues to say that's basically a non-starter on their side, um, and we'll just have to see what happens. Well, and budget leaders have had their hands tied. Uh, you know, they could not put together a budget without having some sort of an education deal done. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did not want to put together a budget that forced the hand on either chamber because they didn't want that, I think, to become part of the negotiating process itself. So they haven't really been able to do a lot, you know, pending that. And that has, you know, the education, uh, you know, I, I want to say, you know, fight, uh, but, you know, the, the tension that, is, that has existed over that over the, last <clears throat> over the last few months, that has really dictated everything else that's happened this legislative session. And, and you're right, Neva, a lot of Senate authors and House authors that still have bills in conference there ha- and, and organizations and, uh, that, that have been lobbying for those bills or against those bills, they're having to make a decision right now. Do we move forward, you know, very quickly? Uh, or do we just hold our hold our hand and wait until next session? And, and unless something is very urgent uh, and has to happen right now, I think a lot of lawmakers and supporters of legislation are saying we're going to wait until 2024. And you've got a lot of these tax credit bills. You've got even the Panasonic deal that we've talked mm-hmm. about, this $245 million that <laughs> needs to be uh, done and sealed and signed by June 1. Uh, that's a big question. And, of course, the uh, speaker and some have contended that it's really not uh, – uh, it's it's not a it's not appropriate anyway because of the way that the, it was constructed and it's a, con- a contingency they they claim attached to uh, something that's already been inked as part of this bigger deal to bring uh, to bring the industry in so you've got an absence of a budget uncertainty of veto overrides you've got the administrative rules um, the administrative rules package is still in flux absolutely critical. And there is now a discussion about expanding the call on the concurrent session. So what does that mean? It means a couple of things. I mean, they could either continue to add things on that they will discuss in the future, or perhaps one of the conversations was, let's just do a flatline budget and we can come in after the fact and increase in areas that we want to increase, but at least we get the budget done and get the pressure off of that. Governor Stitt and legislative leaders celebrated an education funding package earlier this week. The plan calls for $625 million in recurring funds and $160 million in one-time funds. Neva, what is in this package for Oklahoma schools? Well, I think what's in it is something for everyone, and that's how they finally got the deal constructed. And and it was, again, it was one of those... uh, things last week where everyone was sitting kind of holding their breath trying to figure out are is there going to be a deal or not that could be struck uh, negotiations went back and forth ultimately you've got 
you've got in the 625 million of recurring funds, you basically have 500 million into the funding formula. They got the teacher, uh, the teacher and school employee pay raises, the swing on that, 3,000 on the low side, 6,000 on the high side. It's designed based on experience. The 6,000 figure would be for educators that uh, had 15 or more years experience. The 3,000 on the bottom end would be those that had four or less years experience. So the 12 million that went to the uh, paid maternity leave for teachers, the six weeks, mm-hmm. was a big was a big deal, and it was it was part of this package, increasing uh, the what they call the weights in the formula uh, to uh, give uh, uh, benefit to rural schools, something that we know the speaker had dug in and was a key part of what the house wanted. Um, there was an a, a 125 million to the red budget fund, which that goes into areas in our state where. They have below average property taxes uh, to use and allows for these schools to have additional funds for building and infrastructure needs. So critical and something that's been highly successful here in Oklahoma and well and talked about. And then you had the one-time funds. You had a, appropriations for a, a three-year reading proficiency program, a, a, a program that uh, um, that had been talked about for a long time. And you also had uh, money put into a three-year program for safety um, safety and security, a pilot program for schools, which, uh, again, something that has uh, been at the forefront of a lot of the education conversations. So all in all, I think as everybody talked about it and, and kind of took the victory lap, it was really about there's something here for everyone. Because in addition to this, we have the the uh, uh, the thing that the school choice folks wanted in terms of however you characterize it, a tax credit or a voucher, whatever that tiered program that also has uh, been part of this package, which is passed and now uh, will uh, be a reality as well. Right. Well, you know, Senator Adam Pugh at the press conference, and, and uh, for folks that don't know, he's one of the, the main leaders in negotiating the, the Senate side of the education deal this entire session. And so Senator Pugh, he said at the press conference, uh, th- this is his quote, he says, uh, it, it might sound corny, but he says, I say to myself every day, or he said that it sounded corny. I'm not saying it said it's corny. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He said, I say to myself every day, tension is a feature of our system, not a flaw, but we treat it like a flaw because it doesn't mean we get everything we want and it can be contentious and clunky. Uh, and that's exactly what this was, contentious and clunky, uh, but it is a feature of the system. And I think that we, uh, at the end of the day, did see the House uh, get a package that they can take back to rural districts and demonstrate that they delivered for rural Oklahomans, because they really did. Uh, if, if you think about you know how the, the House pushed its way into this education funding piece, uh, especially from last year, when you had a bill that couldn't even make its way out of the Senate, and if it had made its way to the House, would have been DOA because rural lawmakers were walking into an election year, and they did not want to see money going out of uh, either you know the, the rural districts, either into suburban, urban districts, or in some instances, private schools that largely don't exist in their in their legislative districts. So the House got that. The Senate got, um, you know, they, they got the primarily the funding formula that they that they wanted uh, that didn't increase that didn't include the student uh, with, with the student empowerment fund uh, that was the initial deal. I think that there were some constitutional concerns about that, and that was probably raised. We don't know this, but I, I bet that Justice Stephen Taylor, who came in to mediate this, I bet that whenever he was trying to mediate this, he was saying something along the lines of uh, to House leaders, 
here's a way to get what you want that one allows it to be politically feasible and two allows it to withstand judicial scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that that's where they ultimately landed. You know, the governor, whenever he was talking, he gave credit. And I think that this is interesting uh, to secretary of state office attorney, Jeffrey Cartmel for the idea of bringing in former Oklahoma Supreme court justice, Stephen Taylor to mediate. Um, And, you know, I think, you know, Cartmel is an attorney, super sharp and understands that, if you were going to break that, you needed some third party to walk in. And so if, if that idea came from him, kudos to him, because otherwise this would have continued uh, to be at loggerheads and we probably wouldn't see anything happen this session. And whether you like this education plan or not, if something didn't happen this session, it was going to bleed into next year, an election year, uh, and it was going to be even messier. And the idea of compromise would be uh, almost entirely off the table. And I think, you know, when you talk about this uh, tax credit for private and homeschool parents, I mean, this is $155 million. Uh, it will grow to $255 million by 2026. So this is a significant, very significant investment on the, on this side of the education ledger. And when you look at these uh, families that have uh, kids or want to send their children to uh, private K through 12 schools, this refundable tax credit uh, will be between 5,000 and 7,500 per student based upon the family household income. And it also uh, had the piece in, which had been back and forth about homeschool families uh, who now will qualify for a $1,000 refundable uh, tax credit uh, per child. So there are a lot of pieces to this that I think if you would talk to individual lawmakers, they would say, I don't particularly like this, but I like that a lot. This is okay. And that's really what they had to get to. They had to forge the consensus where everyone could walk away knowing that this was truly a historic, comprehensive education plan that had something in it for everyone, uh, which I think was always the speaker's terms. It was a win-win. Um, and I think that as Oklahomans begin to be familiar with this, as they have children in school next fall and they see their options and they see things that uh, uh, improve with the additional programs and other things that will come into play, it will be it will be a bright star for the legislature and the governor to have accomplished in this session. Senator Julia Kurt, my senator, uh, pointing out your example perfectly, she says the education package is a mixed bag. And on Twitter, she goes through and she said, you know, she celebrates the 500 million in new annual for, uh, formula funding, the pay raises, uh, the paid maternity leave. And then she says, you know, it's a little bit of a, uh, you know, help some students, the Redbud program. But then she, she ends with, I think, something that a lot of, uh, a lot of Oklahomans feel uh, that didn't, you know, this didn't need to even be a part of this conversation. And that is the, the voucher program, the tax credit program, however you want to uh, phrase it, $615 million over the next three years largely to families that already benef- that already send their kids to private schools, and they're you know, essentially going to be getting a, a benefit or a rebate depending on their income level. Uh, that'll depend on how much. But the idea that all of this had to be tied to a voucher program to begin with, uh, I think, was uh, unfortunate. And that's where you'll see you know, Senator Kurt and a lot of the Democrats in the legislature say, why couldn't we have had this conversation without having to have a you know, nearly 
you know, half a billion, over half a billion dollar voucher program tied to it as well. And I think I think it comes down to the math. I mean, one of the points made in I think that press conference was uh, the fact that uh, the three most important numbers in the Capitol building that you can say are 25 Senate votes, 51 House votes, and one vote the governor. I mean, that's that's the makeup of what ultimately you have to get the majority, and the, we have super majorities, as we always talk about, of Republicans in the House and Senate, Republican governor. So this was their time to really move the needle in terms of all of these conversations on education. And the best possibility was to put it all in one one super package to get it done. Otherwise, we would be back at the drawing board starting this conversation over in February and um, and looking for a different result, but but still having the same conversation and the same dynamics and ultimately the same numbers to decide it. And mediated by a Supreme Court justice, former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Taylor, who was appointed by a Democratic governor. Uh, so, I mean, it all kind of comes full circle there. <laughs> and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Have the voucher programs withstood judicial scrutiny in the past? Well, I think, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. I think that the the biggest thing that was uh, of concern about judicial, scru- uh, judicial scrutiny was going to be uh, the student empowerment fund that was going to put money outside of the funding formula for public schools in the state of Oklahoma. You, know, you got to remember that our public uh, funding formula for, for secondary schools uh, and elementary and middle school, you know, for all of public education in the state of Oklahoma, uh, it's really the gold standard uh, around the country. And while we've seen other states have their challenge because of inequities that have been built into that funding formula, Oklahoma's uh, funding formula has largely withstood uh, judicial challenges. Um, and the idea that we would create some sort of funding uh, stream outside of that. That's what I think was raising red flags for mm-hmm. folks. You know, the voucher program, it remains to be seen, you know, how, how it's ultimately implemented. I think, you know, this is different than the private, uh, you know, the private religious charter school idea uh, that is that is being floated out there that would be funded, you know, not by parents getting money uh, to, uh, to offset the expense of sending their kids to private schools, but the charter school issue, which would be where money would go directly to a private religious charter school, uh, that is a much bigger judicial issue. A former grant writer for the State Department of Education says Superintendent Ryan Walters is lying to lawmakers about current and future grants. Terry Grissom, who worked as director of grant development for the agency, says she decided to come forward after Walter's testimony last week before the House Appropriations and Budget Committee. Ryan, what is Grissom saying? Well, uh, you know, is anybody shocked uh, that that, that Superintendent Walters would stand in front of a legislative committee and say something that ultimately wasn't true? Uh, The the story that was in the Tulsa world that um, was was most uh, most caught my eye was when Grissom said that she heard Walters at this committee meeting uh, saying that he had already applied for this multi-million dollar grant that had been held by the state regents, uh, long held by the state regents. And she said that that was this idea that Grissom had pitched to Secretary, to Superintendent Walters while she was still employed with the Department of Education, uh, but that the grant application window didn't open until 2024. So you know, she pitched this idea to him of, of trying to you know get this longstanding grant Grant application window isn't even open. He heard that and standing in front of lawmakers, I think either just trying to cobble together something. I don't know if he did it on the fly or if it was premeditated or, you know, he made it up on on his on the elevator ride up to the fourth floor. Who knows? Uh, But he cobbled this together and said, oh, well, you know, this is an example of a federal grant that we've applied for. You can't even apply for it yet. It's not it it doesn't even the the window isn't even open. Uh, And so when I think that that's 
that's probably when when Grissom heard the uh, heard that. You know, she was like, "Wait a second, this this can't stand." And you know, nobody nobody signs up for a government job uh, wanting to be a whistleblower. You know, nobody that is not a uh, that is not a position that anybody wants to be in. As somebody who has uh, represented and worked with whistleblowers in the past, uh, it is a very difficult decision to come forward, uh, especially whenever you've been a, a longtime public servant uh, like Grissom had been, uh, or and and still, uh, you know. I, believe as a whistleblower is a public servant. Um, but that's, that's a tough decision. And I, I hope that legislators, uh, will begin to ramp up their calls and their demands to produce these documents. If, if this isn't true, if what, uh, if what Terry Grissom is saying isn't true, bring, bring it, you know, show us the papers, show us the applications. But again, like I've said many times on this program, I just don't think that they exist. And this seems to be more evidence of that. Neva. Absolutely. And and let's kind of take a snapshot of this particular whistleblower. I mean, this is someone who was the director for grant development at the the, uh, State Department of Education Mm -hmm. since 2017. Someone who's been a grant writer for, I think, three decades. Uh, Someone who was in the classroom as a teacher for more than a decade. I mean, someone who brings great credentials, someone who uh, had had done this job and finally decided uh, to to look elsewhere. I mean, with the changing of uh, the changing of the uh, guard with the new superintendent, and clearly from her own accounts that have been published, uh, that her efforts to try to have conversations with the superintendent uh, moving forward of what he wanted, what his view was, what his uh, um, what his approach was going to be, had really uh, just stalled and gone nowhere. When she sent these emails to uh, three uh, three of the lawmakers, um, Representative McBride, Representative Baker, and and um, uh, Minority Leader Munson, I mean, that really kind of kicked the door open because this was documentation. I mean, this is someone who had written these grants. She knew specifically where things were. And when the superintendent went before this committee, you're right, Ryan, I mean, he said he'd done more than anyone ever had. And yet, from all appearances, based on uh, what she's laying out as as uh, the the facts, uh, it appears that nothing's been done, and yet you have grants in process that, if they're not completed, the state will be forced to re have to give that money back. And we're talking in some instances hundred million dollar grants. Mm-hmm. I mean, so um, it's not something to sneeze at. And I think for lawmakers, talking about the budget that we that we've just uh, uh, spoken about earlier, I mean. This, when you start talking about the rest of the education budget that still has to be uh, addressed and appropriated, there's a real mixed feeling out there of do we do we drill down and start to micromanage uh, uh, the State Department because we don't have confidence in what's going on, or do we do what's always historically been done? They get appropriated just like each agency, their money, and they place it in the fashion that they that they choose with their personnel and programs and and move forward. And that's, I mean, this kind of information coming out um, has to give pause to lawmakers and everyone else because it raises so many serious questions. Does there, is there any legal issue that uh, Walters could face if he, or I, it's not technically a testifo- testimony, he's not actually under oath to the lawmakers, but if he's actually well, there was some then. question. You know, there was there were some lawmakers that wanted him to be put under oath mm-hmm. for this very reason, and mm-hmm. yet chose to uh, kind of take the high road, chose to not go that far. 
but in, and then we find ourselves with this conversation. Right. Well, and right now, because we didn't have you know, some sort of oath, there wasn't any obligation. Mean, you would think that as, a, as an elected statewide official, you'd have an obligation to tell the truth, but there wasn't a legal obligation there. This is largely a political question at the moment. And uh, unfortunately, that political question can't be answered by Oklahoma voters until 2026. And uh, unless, you know, some, some intervening factor uh, between now and then, we're probably going to have uh, Superintendent Walters until 2026. And that becomes a, a political question at that point. Um, so I but I, I do think that you're, you're right, Neva, the lawmakers, you know, what what do they do with the budget moving forward? Do they create a, uh, a Ryan Walters uh, fund uh, that is, you know, that's just hanging out there so that if we have to start repaying these grants, um, I, I do think that law- lawmakers would uh, be wise to begin to itemize how much money is in jeopardy you know, so that Oklahomans do have a sense of what that liability is uh, and who is politically responsible for it. And whenever they bring him back, they should put him under oath. And if he doesn't want to come back under oath, they should use their power, their subpoena power and bring him back and force him to testify under oath. Uh, and let's, let's at least get the information out there. Let's at least get the truth out there. And if he doesn't tell the truth, there should be consequences. And you know, you have this whistleblower at the State Department of Education mm-hmm. coming out of the State Department. There's revelations this week of a whistleblower talking about uh, 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 sexual abuse and cover-ups at the Department of Corrections, uh, someone that had been fired uh, and uh, has gone through the process back and forth and has been, um, the, the state has been told to put her back to work, back pay, et cetera, and there's still, I guess, ongoing litigation and and uh, all that's going on with that. But Ashlyn Huffman with the uh, Oklahoma Watch, she covers the criminal justice um, mm-hmm. uh, department er- area, has done an incredible job of beginning to uh, outline, just like we're talking about with the, uh, the State Department of Ed, uh, many allegations at the Department of Corrections, again, with federal implications. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot going on, and I, I have to think that people inside the Capitol at every turn are kind of scratching their heads and wondering what's next. And it's not a good scenario, and I think uh, it does give pause, and and uh, as they craft this budget, they are going to have to keep these things uh, certainly forefront in their mind because even with the uh, DOC investigation, it also could lend toward um, some consequences in terms of uh, uh, what, what it might cost the state somewhere down the road. Governor Sitt says he wants the state legislature to be subject to the Oklahoma Open Records Act. This came during a veto message where he says reforming the 1985 law should include other branches of government. The Oklahoma legislature is one of only four state legislatures exempt from public records laws. Neva, how likely is the legislature to subject themselves to this act? <laughs> I think it's a non-starter. I, I think it is zero likely. I mean, and there's not very many things you can talk about with the uh, legislative implications that you can give uh, the zero to. But I, I would, I would say, based on past history, I mean, lawmakers have successfully overturned uh, a veto uh, that Stitt did on on something similar, where he, you know, made this his. Uh, made this his explanation for the veto. So I, it may be a conversation that will continue and go down the road, but it's certainly not something that uh, is imminent. And I think that uh, if anything, it just appeared the governor was another shot across the bow to have to have something to kind of poke the eye of some of the lawmakers. And um, I think from my perception, it appears that it's got nothing more than just kind of a a passing glance. Ryan. Well, I agree. I, I think uh, as a, you know, it, 
it would bring some transparency to the process. It is odd that we can get uh, access to uh, a wide range of documents from municipal, county, and state elected officials uh, and, and public bodies uh, to scrutinize the citizens, you know, whether or not our public funds are being expended the right way, uh, whether or not our, our public officials are using their, their power the right way. Um, th- this is an important tool for Oklahomans, especially, I mean, we're at a point now in, in 2023 where the amount of records that are being generated on a daily basis, if you look at text, email, mm-hmm. uh, is, is enormous. Um, and, and it really is probably more than any other point in history, the most documented form of government that we have, except it is very difficult at times to get to those actual documents. The Open Records Act that was passed in 1985, an incredibly important tool for Oklahomans. If it were expanded to the legislature, it would open up some of these conversations that happen uh, in the budget. You know, what are the budget chairmen emailing each other about? What are the contentions? What are the sticking points? Uh, you know, as a former uh, legislator myself, I can tell you, it sure was convenient uh, to not have the Open Records Act apply. Uh, because you, you weren't you know, writing uh, emails with the idea to a constituent uh, with the idea that, okay, well, this, is, this could be seen uh, through an Open Records Act request. Of course, uh, I think everybody would be wise. The moment you send something uh, and it goes outside of your, uh, outside of your control, uh, it could be seen by anybody. You right. know, who knows? But, the, but there isn't a formal process to get at that. I don't think that this is going to happen. One, one point, though, where I think that... Um, if we think about how the mediator, uh, the mediator worked, Justice Taylor worked in this education process. Mediation, by its very nature, is confidential, uh, and so that is that is to give the parties to the mediation an opportunity to have frank, candid, candid discussions about their goals and objectives. Um, and so, uh, the the idea that how how would this have played out in the mediation? Who knows? You know, President Pro Temp Greg Treat said that he's a, he would be concerned that it could be weaponized. And so that the minority party or maybe the opposite chamber could just try to tie things up with a bunch of uh, frivolous requests. That is already accounted for with the executive branch. So, I mean, I, I understand that concern, but the Open Records Act, as it stands right now, already says that people can't do that with the executive branch. If your whole goal is just to bog down some state agency, you, you, you're not allowed to do that. And they're allowed to discard those requests. So, yeah. But it's not going anywhere. Uh, you know, it's, this, is, this is all you know, kind of like you know, grad seminar theory stuff right now because the legislature will never do it on their own. And I don't think anybody spends the millions of dollars necessary to get something like this on the ballot. And the, and the legislature, I mean, there are public record laws that come into play when they do when they do the people's business. I mean, right. what when you talk about uh, going beyond that and private conversations and the give and take that, that goes on, uh, let's remember when we talk about city and county uh, governments, they can go into executive session as those elected folks mm-hmm. and uh, and and have the privacy to have those conversations. So there has to be the balance there of making sure that there is transparency, making sure that there is openness, but there but we can't go crazy on it to the point that it becomes uh, counterproductive and and pushes everyone in directions that no one really intended. So I think this is one of those conversations that when you really drill down and you look, it's not nearly as um, as horrible as sometimes it's portrayed on the right. upfront that, oh, these people are doing all of these terrible things and we have no control and no ability to know what's going on. That's just not true. And I think the weaponizing uh, piece that, uh, that the pro tem mentioned is something that has to be looked at. I mean, in this day and age, and given the political climate, um, and given the fact that uh, you just allow this as one more 
element into the into the uh, kind of the equation, uh, a lot of good people are going to decide that they won't be uh, willing to give public service, and that would be a travesty. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to weigh all of these things, and certainly I think the legislature making this uh, quick, apparently what looks like a very quick decision once again, is really with a great deal of thought behind it. Well, I think it was Pro Temp Treat who said something about the committee process being transparent, and that's where a lot of decision-making happens. You can watch that online. You can watch the mm-hmm. committee meetings recorded online. I think that that is a, a great service. But I have uh, clients that come in from out of state, they'll visit Oklahoma, or they'll be watching online, and they are a little astounded at how our committee meetings work many times, because you'll have a bill come up, and even before the bill's author is done introducing the bill and explaining what it is, you've got a motion for a due pass, you've got a second, and then there's a vote, and there's no conversation. We have, it's very rare that you have public testimony, uh, so uh, it's very rare that you have any written testimony that can be put into sort of a record. There is no record uh, to look at, and so, I think that a lot of the things that lawmakers uh, have looked at that go into their consideration of how they are going to vote or act in that particular committee, um, because committees do move bills very quickly like that, and there's not a lot of public input in that committee process, you do find yourself uh, you know, scratching your head saying, well, what, what went into their deliberation here? What went into their consideration here? Um, and so... And that's, you know, we see that's different than interim studies. I think if we could begin to see some uh, combination of what's happening in these interim studies with uh, what's happening in, in the legislature during its regular session, uh, more Oklahomans would feel like, okay, this is how this decision was arrived at. But when you look at thousands of bills and the fact that you do have the interim sessions, you do have the opportunity for testimony to, to have studies presented, to give in-depth uh, information to lawmakers on, on particular subject matter, that's one component. And the other, the other part of this is when they get in those committee meetings, I mean, folks come in knowing what's up. Mm-hmm. They know, kind of already have uh, probably done their scorecard and figured out whether it's going to fly or not. I mean, there's no surprises. It's a very, it's a very uh, a long process uh, to get something through the legislative, you know, through the legislature and signed into law. It doesn't happen just quickly. I mean, it's not, you know, we go to the committee, we go to the floor, we go to the floor, we go to the governor, and it's done. It sometimes takes multiple sessions, as we know, I mean, on some of these very complex areas, I mean, uh, that we've talked about. It takes a lot, and people have an opportunity, I believe, and, and I think one of the real things that has changed a lot of that is the fact that there is the online ability for people right. all across mm-hmm. Oklahoma and the world, if they choose, to uh, to tune in and watch these hearings, watch floor action, uh, see what's going on, uh, to whatever extent that their interest, uh, uh, um, they choose to do it. And they just have to exercise it, though. It's, right. it's not self It's not a self-executing power that we have as as citizens. This is something. If you want to use this and you want to have the power of it, you got to tune in. You got to watch it. And by the same token, people elect lawmakers legislators to come to the Capitol and represent them. And they know who their folks are, typically, that, that do represent them as their, as their House member, their senator. Uh, they know these folks and can communicate with them directly uh, on matters that are of great importance to them, education being probably one of the ones that they probably heard the most uh, from constituents in, in, recent, uh, in recent weeks and months because of whatever part of that that they were concerned about. Yeah. Hopefully you also have a strong fourth estate to make sure that they're covered and the questions are being asked. Absolutely. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. 
Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.